MacCast, Sunday, April 3rd, 2022. This episode of the MacCast is brought to you by Coda. More on them a little later in the show. Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is the show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to be back here with you for another episode of Mac News, hints, tips, information, all the goings-ons in our Apple and Mac community. Hopefully you are having a wonderful week, weekend, whatever it might be. Uh, looking through the show notes, looks like we have quite a few things to talk about. We're going to be getting into iPhone SE sales this episode. We're also going to look at improvements to Apple Maps. Got a lot going on with Apple TV+. Plus. It seems like they might be having a little bit of growing pains, but maybe that's not impacting them too much. And we'll get into that. We've got some new, uh, new shows and things to talk about. And then Apple Pay may be looking to make a change that could help it roll out maybe in more locations. And then we have a little bit of discussion on what's next maybe for iPhone and specifically biometrics. And so that will round out the news for this week. And then we're going to get into some of your feedback. We're going to have um, some feedback on our discussion about the Apple Studio, Apple Studio display and kind of the missing Mac in the middle that we've been talking about. I've got some not so stupid iOS tricks to tell you about, some cool little tips and tricks that you may not know. And then we have questions about backup and video and a listener thing of the moment. And that will round out this week's MacCast. So should be a good one. But before we dive in, I do want to take a quick moment and thank a show sponsor. And that is CoreCode, makers of Mac Updater. Mac Updater scans and displays all installed software to let you know quickly and easily which of your apps need to be updated. It's real easy to see at a glance which of your apps is out of date. And it also makes it really easy to find apps that you may have forgotten about and you want to remove. I actually used Mac Updater to do exactly that. I had a number of applications that I didn't even realize were still on my Mac and it helped me identify those. Also helped me identify several apps that I hadn't updated in a while. And I was able to go quickly and easily and update that. That's because Mac Updater has information for over 60,000 apps and growing. And for 6,000 of the most popular apps and growing, those can be updated directly inside Mac Updater with a single click. And the latest version, 2.1, has added some really great features, including support for even more software types, including Adobe plugins. They've made it more flexible and added integration for tools like Alfred, which give you another easy way to trigger updates for your apps. And they've improved performance, made a ton of small quality of life interface improvements, like the ability to switch between classic and Big Sur style icons. And it's ready for Monterey and all of your compatibility updates. Mac Update is a universal build, compatible with Apple Silicon, and it's a one-time purchase, no subscriptions. And they also value your privacy, so they don't collect any personal data. And best of all, they're offering MacCast listeners 15% off at corecode.io when you use the code MacCastQ1, all uppercase, that's C-O-R-E-C-O-D-E dot I-O for 15% off for all MacCast listeners. And a big thank you to CoreCode for their support of the MacCast. It's looking like Apple's new iPhone SE update may not be having the impact that Apple was hoping for. Citing unnamed sources, Nikkei Asia this week said that Apple is already cutting production on the recently updated version of the iPhone SE due to lower-than-expected demand. The report claims that Apple is asking its suppliers to cut back by 2 to 3 million units for this quarter, and Ming-Chi Kuo also lowered his, his predictions on iPhone SE sales for 2022. He took the number down from 25 to 30 million units to 15 to 20 million units as a result of that lower demand. 
Apple has also reportedly lowered production on the iPhone 13, but this is pretty normal due to the cycle and where we are with current iPhone models. We are expecting the iPhone 14 this fall, and this time of year, things usually do slow down a little bit, so nothing to be concerned about there. Now, could it be that consumers are done with an iPhone that still features older tech even at a lower price? I'm wondering if maybe the home button, the Touch ID, the single camera are all just a little bit too long in the tooth for most consumers. Also, the size, 4.7 inches, is that too small now? What do you think in the community? curious to know your opinion. The iPhone mini has also reportedly been on the way out this year from earlier things that we've talked about here on the show. And so maybe 6.1 inches is the new small iPhone size. Judging by our community, I don't think it likely is. I know there's a lot of you out there who really prefer a smaller form factor, something below six inches. So I think it would be nice if Apple could somehow make the iPhone mini the new SE, bringing the features and size of the Mini in at a lower price. It might be a little bit of a tall order to ask for. Uh, $429 is a pretty low entry price point, at least for an iPhone, and uh, cramming all the features of the iPhone Mini in at that price may be a little bit difficult. Maybe they can get it down to sub $500, like $499 instead of $699, Uh, And maybe the way to do that is drop the dual camera back down to a single camera lens and lower the storage of the SE. Um, They, you know, my fictional mini version, iPhone mini version of the SE down to 64, 128 and 256 gigabytes, just like the current SE model. And maybe that gets them to that price point. But I don't know. What do you think? This same report also claimed that Apple was cutting production of AirPods by 10 million units, but that was contradicted by Ming-Chi Kuo in a tweet where he said that that suppliers LuxShare, Precision, and GoerTech denied that claim. So iPhone SE, yeah, maybe not taking off as well as Apple had hoped. There's a lot of factors going into that, just uncertainty of the economy, I think slowing uh, smartphone sales in general, and again, maybe consumer buying preferences. And that's the one I'm really curious to hear from you about. So if you have some feedback, shoot me an email, send me an audio comment, maccast at gmail.com. Apple Maps, as you know, has been getting better and better over the years. The new enhanced map features have been rolling out globally in a number of locations. I'm really enjoying the new directions and the additional details and stuff like that. And a lot of that credit goes to Apple's Maps team. Well, now it seems like Apple may have sent ground teams off around London, Manchester and Birmingham in the UK in an effort to further refine maps and features like Look Around. As you may know, London and Manchester, Birmingham, the UK, a lot of places in the UK are kind of walking cities. And so there's many places where just Apple's cars can't go and get uh, map data. So they're now using humans with the specially designed Apple backpacks on to go around and gather map data in Berkshire, Greater London, Greater Manchester, Staffordshire and West Midlands, also across over 85 specific towns and boroughs, gathering data to help update Apple Maps. And so you can imagine walking directions and a lot more information is going to be a lot more detailed in those regions. It'll be a while before they can actually process and get all that data into Apple Maps, but the surveys are currently ongoing and will run through May 20th. So if you happen to be in that area, you may see some folks walking around with those Apple backpacks, and they're pretty amazing. They've got all kinds of, you know, GPS and satellite kind of data on them. Uh, They look pretty heavy, so I think that'd be kind of a rough job. So if you see one of those folks walking around, you know, maybe give them a kind wave, maybe even uh, bring them a coffee or something like that, because, you know, they are helping improve Apple Maps, and that might be a nice gesture from the community. Apple Maps in the U.S. also may be getting a little bit better. They are going to be able to provide better real-time roadway hazard information thanks to an integration with the safety cloud from Hass Alert. I think it's Hass Alert is probably how you say it. H-A-S-S. That was announced this week. Uh, Drivers 
are going to get uh, more information about emergency vehicles, incident responses, work zones, and other hazards on the road provided by Safety Cloud, and that will alert you in Apple Maps, giving you a better advanced warning of potential safety hazards coming up along your route. Hopefully, Apple at the same time can maybe also fix the feature that asks you to confirm that a road hazard has cleared. I've not been particularly thrilled with this feature because it actually asks you when you're pretty far away from the location. So it wants to know, hey, has this been cleared, especially if you're in traffic? I think we've talked about this on a previous episode of the MacCast. It can be up to a mile away, so it's hard to really know whether to clear that or not. Also, it pops up while you're driving. I'm not sure that's exactly the safest way to go. It'd be nice if maybe Siri could ask you and rather you could do that hands-free. So I think there's some improvement that Apple could do there, but it's nice to know, at least in the U.S., we're going to have kind of better road hazard information. And hopefully that's something, again, that Apple can roll out more internationally. But some really nice Apple Maps updates coming uh, in the news this week. Unfortunately, this week, there also have been uh, some kind of not so not I'm not going to say negative, but uh, basically some reports that Apple TV Plus may be having some growing pains and that the team could be struggling. I have to imagine for a tech company to grow into a global entertainment company, it's really not that easy. And I would expect that there would be bumps in the road. Overall, I think Apple TV Plus seems to have done amazingly well, at least from the outside. And a lot of that is probably due to some early hiring and recruiting efforts of key Hollywood players that Apple engaged in. We talked about that a lot here on the MacCast as Apple TV Plus started to ramp up. Still, this week, Business Insider ran an article citing some growth issues within Apple's entertainment group. The piece Hence, that Apple TV Plus's content division is understaffed and that there are issues in some of the content rollouts. The story calls out specifically marketing and publicity as one area in particular that seems to be struggling. They report that there are management issues due to lack of resources and burnout rates are high because of the massive demands put on the limited employee resources. Not only that, but supposedly some potentially serious serious mistakes are being made, including one incident where they mention uh, that a streaming show showed up on the service before a contract had been signed. So, ouch, that's not really good. They kind of say the legal team maybe isn't as up to date with uh, the goings-on for Hollywood studios and those sorts of things, and that is also causing problems. The pandemic delays also seem to have not been helping and have caused extra strain because a lot of the delayed projects are now running simultaneously with new projects, and that is reportedly further straining Apple's staff. Apple seems to be wanting to do more and more of their content in-house versus farming project out projects out to studios. And again, that could put even more strain on their resources. And despite the, what the report claims, personally, I have to imagine that even if any of these claims are true, this is an issue that Apple is more than capable of handling. They have a lot of cash on hand. They can ramp up resources, although I know that is particularly challenging right now, but I'm sure they are on top of it and uh, moving to resolve these issues quickly. But whatever Apple's content teams are doing right now, I have to say it seems to be working, at least from the consumer perspective, because I haven't really seen signs of those growing pains showing themselves. As a matter of fact, Apple TV Plus has been maintaining their rumored goal, and this was something I think we talked about on the MacCast, of trying to release a new premium series or film every Friday in 2022, and they have been doing exactly that. Not only that, but their quantity over quality strategy seems to be bringing them a lot of dividends. Uh, Recently, Apple's film Coda won three Oscars, including Best Picture, the first for any streaming service. They also got awards for Best Supporting Actor and Best Screenplay. As a matter of fact, Apple TV Plus has had more than 250 wins in award ceremonies so far and almost 1,000 nominations. And you have to remember, that's for a service that is just two years old. So that is pretty amazing and does 
give a testament to their focus on quality. It's also estimated that Apple TV Plus subscription revenue nearly doubled year over year to an estimated $2.2 billion. This is according to Bernstein analyst Tony Sakanagi. And some recent numbers put Apple TV Plus's U.S. paid subscriber base at around $12 million. So it's not the biggest service out there, but at $4.99, it is one of the more affordable ones. And I have to say, again, and I think I've commented on this many times, but just about every show I've encountered on Apple TV Plus has been worth watching. And I don't think you can say that for a lot of other streaming services. And of course, Apple continues to grow that quality content. This week, they had a couple of big Apple TV Plus announcements. The first is a new series called Dark Matter, based on the very popular book of the same name by Blake Crouch. The series will star Joel Egerton and will follow his character, Jason Desson, who is abducted one night while walking home on the streets of Chicago and pulled into an alternate version of his life. This book is a hugely popular sci-fi title and has been called one of the, quote, best sci-fi novels of the decade. So I'm sure fans will be excited to see this coming to Apple TV+. No word on when that will happen, though. Then a new film set during the space race with a lot of its details being kept secret is coming according to Deadline. What's not secret is that the film will star Scarlett Johansson and Chris Evans from The Avengers and be directed and executive produced by Jason Bateman. Seems like the title, or maybe the working title, is Project Artemis, and Apple reportedly paid more than $100 million to secure the film. Johansson and Evans also had another film project that was supposed to show up on Apple TV Plus called Ghosted, but Johansson had to drop out due to scheduling conflicts. Ghosted is still filming, but Anna de Arma stepped in to take on Johansson's role. And as a matter of fact, Johansson also is starring in and producing another film for Apple TV Plus called Bride. So she has a number of projects coming. And again, this exemplifies the kind of star power that Apple is pulling into their new service. And I have to imagine this helps attract subscribers and also adds to the equality. I mean, you've got Johansson, Chris Evans, Jason Bateman, who is incredible. Uh, I have heard nothing but great things about Ozark, although I have to admit I have not started watching that show yet, though many people told me that I should do that. So again, Apple growing that service. And also coming up soon, Apple's first live sports on Apple TV Plus will likely also help their numbers. Starting on April 8th, Apple will air two Friday night Major League Baseball games weekly. Not only that, it came out this week that the games will be in the first 12 weeks available for free, even if you do not have an Apple TV Plus subscription. So that should pull a number of people to the service. And something that I found interesting too is because it is Major League Baseball in the United States, it's not just the U.S. that's going to get these games. The games are going to be available in the United States, Canada, Australia, Brazil, Japan, Mexico, Puerto Rico, South Korea, and the United Kingdom. So I don't know how popular, well, I know some of the countries, uh, baseball is popular, but I don't know how popular it is maybe in the UK. But if, hey, you're curious, you can watch it and you will be able to do that for free. So Apple really focusing on Apple TV Plus and growing that service. And uh, I think it will, will pay off in some pretty good numbers. We'll have to wait for Apple's next quarterly results to see how their... Uh, their uh, services revenue grows, but that's been growing leaps and bounds. And I think Apple TV plus is a big part of that. Another big part of Apple's growing services business is Apple pay. And it's looking like they want to bring more of that in house. This is something that Apple likes to do with all of their products. They like to control their own destiny. And this week, Bloomberg is reporting that Apple has a multi-year plan to try to reduce their reliance on financial partners like Goldman Sachs, who is the bank behind the Apple card. They claim that Apple is developing in-house processing technology through a project codenamed Breakout. They are working on services not only for processing cards, but also lending risk assessment, fraud analysis, credit checks, 
and dispute handling, along with tools for calculating interest, rewards, approving transactions, reporting data to credit bureaus, increasing credit limits, and even more, according to the report. It's looking like Apple's first solo financial product might be a pay-in-four payment option for Apple Pay called, surprise, Apple Pay in 4. I think we'd heard this rumor before. It would be part of a larger delayed payments offering that Apple is going to call Apple, or reportedly call, Apple Pay later, which will have an option for long-term payment plans called Apple Pay Monthly Installments. And while Apple will likely run the Apple Pay in 4 piece in-house, the longer-term financing option would probably still be handled by a partner like Goldman Sachs. Controlling their own destiny may be the key for Apple also taking features like Apple Card and Apple Cash International, since those offerings currently rely on partners who are focused mainly in the U.S. and finding international partners can be a slow process. So I'm imagining that, you know, moving a lot of the stuff in-house is Apple's initiative to kind of get things moving a little bit more quickly. Uh, It's likely that all of this ties into also the recent rumors that I think we talked about on the last episode of the MacCast of Apple wanting to offer a subscription service for their hardware. I'm not so sure that I'm a fan of that, but I did reach out to the community and many of you kind of seem interested in it. I've kind of probably had about a 50-50 reaction. Uh, Some of you thinking that, hey, this would be a great option since I buy a new device every year, specifically iPhones, but it sounds like Apple may roll this out to other hardware. And, uh, you know, leasing might be a great option, especially if you can get newer products at an affordable device at at a more affordable price that remains to be seen if that's what will happen but uh, it could be an interesting option for folks another kind of half of you feel like i do that you know we don't need more kind of credit and there just seems to be a lot of questions about how upgrade cycles will work and how apple will be able to kind of afford to underwrite that but i guess if they're looking at you know all of this financial stuff and doing all that in-house maybe they have a handle on it so we'll have to wait and see what apple does and i'm sure at some point there may be an announcement that uh, they're bringing these programs forward and then finally in the news for this week we have some information regarding underscreen technology in future iphones and it seems to be a little bit in flux this is a rumor that's been going around back and forth for years and years that Apple may be looking to move Touch ID under the display. Well, Ming-Chi Kuo this week seems to be waffling on his predictions on the future of underscreen tech for iPhones. In a tweet, the analyst rolled back earlier predictions that Apple would have at least one model of iPhone with underscreen Touch ID by 2023. The tweet seems to indicate that Apple now has less interest in touch and in a touch ID solution to complement face ID now that they have face ID with masks working. Still, both Quo and display analyst Ross Young are now predicting that Apple will have an under display technology in the form of face ID relatively soon, though they disagree on the exact timing. Quo says that it'll happen by 2023, while Young thinks it will be in 2024. Regardless, it does mean that if you've been expecting or hoping for the return of Touch ID to any of Apple's flagship models anytime soon, that is seeming to look like it's going to be less and less likely. And speaking of screens, we continue to hear rumors that Apple is exploring the possibility of foldable displays for future products. This week, news is coming from the Alack, who says that Apple is working with LG on a foldable OLED panel that actually has an ultra-thin cover glass. So in my mind, that has been one of the obstacles, I think, that would stop Apple from bringing a flexible display forward is the fact that Apple does prefer glass as a material versus plastic. So this may enable that. According to the report, the panels that LG has been developing are actually larger size panels. So it is believed that the first products that Apple is exploring to have the tech may be an iPad or a MacBook. And we did hear about a possible 20 inch 
foldable MacBook that Apple was working on. The elect didn't specifically comment on the size of the device, but Ming-Chi Kuo this week came out and claimed that Apple is actually, quote-unquote, actively testing a 9-inch foldable device. So that sounds more like an iPad mini, maybe phone hybrid. Um, But he didn't specifically comment that this was the same tech that uh, the elect piece was talking about with the LG OLED panel. Quo thinks Apple's priorities for releasing foldable devices will be to do a medium-sized device followed by a large device and then a small device. So that does seem to indicate that the iPhone may be the last model and Apple could start with an iPad or a MacBook Pro, kind of backing up the news from the elect. Although Quo says Apple won't likely release a foldable until at least 2025. So we're going to be waiting a while on that one. So these are some pretty early rumors. But again, if Apple wants to do a glass panel, that tech is a little bit further behind the current folding tech. So it doesn't surprise me that we might have to wait a little bit longer for that. And while we're still on the topic of screens, one more screen to talk about this week. iFixit did do their teardown of Apple's studio display. And internally, they say it looks more like a computer than a display. And that's not too surprising because it basically is a computer with the A13 chip, the internal power supply, fans, speakers, and cameras. Looks a lot more like an iMac than just a display. They do note that the internal power supply is an amazing feat of engineering, and I would have to agree with that. I like the fact that they built the power supply in so you don't have to have a big external brick. But they do say that's why the display needs a massive amount of cooling and why it requires almost a 50% thicker chassis than the iMac. The good news on the camera front is is that they can see no reason why the hardware would have any issues, uh, like was reported by a lot of early re- early reviewers. So just like Apple said, there should be a software fix for the low-quality images that were experienced. So if you do have an Apple Studio display and you've not been really happy with the camera quality, Apple has come out and said they are going to dire- uh, they are going to address that with a future software update, and it seems like iFixit thinks they should be able to do just that. So, uh, you know, studio display, nice option, a little bit pricey. We've talked about that a little bit, but uh, yeah, it's nice to have another more affordable Apple display in the lineup. But with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a moment and thank another show sponsor, and that is Coda. You know what's great? Being able to work from anywhere. I just need a laptop and decent Wi-Fi. But you know what's not so great? Being spread out across the country and trying to keep your team on the same page and focused on tasks. And that's where Coda comes in. With teams working all across the country, if your best work is spread out across documents and spreadsheets and a stack of workflow tools you have to jump in and out of all day, then you need Coda, the doc that brings it all together. Coda is endlessly customizable and connected. There are templates for anything and everything. Your product roadmap, remote onboarding, OKR tracker, meeting notes, you name it, Coda has it. Coda adapts to growing teams and challenging strategies. It can help change how you view information depending on what you need to do with it. And perhaps most importantly, Coda seamlessly integrates with the tools you need. Everything in Coda is synced. Make an update in a table, and it automatically shows up everywhere. No more relying on copy-paste to keep linchpin projects current. Your team can operate on the same information and collaborate the way we all want to, quickly and efficiently. With Coda, you can solve for just about anything. And right now, you can get started having your team all work together on the same page for free. Head over to coda.io slash maccast. That's C-O-D-A dot I-O slash maccast to get started for free. Coda.io slash maccast. And a big thank you to Coda for their support of the show. So we've been talking about the new Mac Studio display, the Mac Studio And the death of the 27-inch iMac, which I feel leaves the high-end consumer desktop 
option for Apple in a little bit of flux. And we've been going back and forth on that. I've kind of shared my opinions and I asked some of you to share your opinions and also just share your opinions on the Mac Studio, Mac Studio display in general. And really it felt to me where the hole was, was for any person who wants to spend about two to $3,000 US on a Mac desktop with a nice Apple display. Of course, you can get third-party displays, and we've talked about that a little bit as well. And I asked for general feedback from the community and actually received this great response from Paul. Hi, Adam. Uh, Paul here from Galway. Uh, You said you were looking for some buyer experiences following the recent Apple event, so I said I'd fill you in on my one. I have a 27.5-inch iMac from 2017 with a Fusion Drive and was eagerly awaiting the recent Apple event so I could update the latest iMac. The Mac is showing its age and the Fusion Drive turned out to be a disaster. Uh, I was hoping for an M1 or an M1 Pro 27.5 inch iMac as I love the screen size but need something faster than the Fusion Drive on the existing iMac. My budget was going to be around €2,500. I became excited at first as the Mac Studio was introduced. Uh, Then I discovered that the lowest configuration was an M1 Max chip. Uh, I work remotely and mainly use Microsoft Teams for video calls, Outlook, Safari and Xcode. Uh, The M1 Pro would have been nice, but more than I needed. It also became clear as the event went on that the price of a replacement system for my iMac was going to run to well over €4,000. I had a spare trackpad, but would need a new keyboard and a new studio screen. Moving away from an all-in-one system is quite expensive in the Apple ecosystem. I decided to review what I needed and what I could do without. An M1 chip was a minimum. An M1 Pro would be more than I needed and not a necessity, just a nice to have. I do like the large screen size, but could give it up if I had to. So I decided to settle for the 24-inch iMac and immediately started to pick out a colour. To upgrade to 16 gigabytes memory put the price close to €2,000 already. I had chosen orange as the colour when I decided to take a step back and compare the 24-inch iMac to any other options that Apple provides. So the 24-inch iMac has the M1 and built-in screen and webcam and comes with mouse and Touch ID keyboard. The price was less than my budget, but I was going to be taking a hit on screen real estate and also not getting center stage on the webcam. The Mac Studio with studio display and keyboard was just beyond my budget and my requirements. I then looked at the Mac Mini, which comes with the same M1 chip as the 24-inch iMac. I had never considered a Mac Mini before, as I would have had to buy speakers and a webcam. But now I could consider it with the studio display. That gave me back the screen real estate I was used to. The Mini has terrible speakers and no microphone, but as the studio display takes over those features and adds centre stage, it managed to more than fill the gaps. So in the end, I opted for the Mac Mini. I upgraded to the 16GB RAM and paired it with a studio display and a touch bar keyboard. I have my spare trackpad already. Um, The new system came in three separate deliveries, with the studio display being the last to arrive. Um, I also have a 19-inch Dell monitor that my son used for a while. Um, I've attached that as a second monitor through a HDMI cable. This is my first time being able to have a Mac setup with dual monitors. The Mac Mini has turned out to be a lot faster than I thought. It's low on USB-C ports, but the studio display has solved that problem for me with three extra ports there. The sound from the monitor is flawless, and I've now ended up with two large screens rather than one. I still paid a lot more than I expected. The price touched €3,000 as I went for the height-adjustable display option. But my feeling now is that the monitor will do me for the next few Macs. And maybe in a few years' time, the Mac Studio will fit nicely below the studio display. I must say the Mac Mini is bigger on the desk than I imagined, 
and there are a mess of cables coming from it at the moment, but I'll sort those out in time. It does sit there quietly though, running two monitors and opening apps with great speed. I'm extremely pleased with my new setup. So that's my story. Uh, Keep up the good work, Adam, and thanks. Hey, Paul, congratulations on the new setup. It absolutely sounds amazing and does sort of solve that problem that we were talking about, that 2 to 3K desktop Mac with a nice Apple display. Sounds like you spent a little bit more, but as you mentioned, you did opt for the, what, $400 US upgrade to the adjustable stand, but that is very nice. And I think you're not alone in your conclusion. As a matter of fact, I know you're not alone in your conclusion that, you know, maybe the combo is the Mac Mini plus the studio display. And I particularly like you pointing out something that I did not think about, which is the longevity of that 27-inch display. I, as a matter of fact, know people in the community that are still using Apple's old Thunderbolt or LCD studio displays and continue to absolutely, absolutely love them. They are a high quality display. And yeah, you can keep that display through several Macs. And so that's an investment that has a lot of longevity. And you have to kind of factor that into your buying decision. And that definitely was something that I did not think about. But like I said, you definitely were not alone as being the only one who's viewing the studio display plus Mac mini as a viable option for a desktop Mac at this point. As a matter of fact, here's what Niv had to say. Hi, Adam. Niv from Israel here, uh, following up on your discussion about the iMac versus a studio display and a Mac. Um, I don't mind having a 24-inch iMac instead of the 27-inch display. But looking at the prices, and if you're uh, thinking long-term, buying an iMac now and replacing it when you need to instead of maybe a mac mini and a studio display where you'd only need to replace the mac mini and the one you're replacing you can of course use it um as a streamer device or server or anything else of course and just upgrading that instead of replacing the whole screen every time could be a better option uh for me also I'm going to use uh, VESA, which I'm using right now with just uh, Philips display. And getting an iMac with a VESA will have um, more difficulty finding where to put it in a house or even selling it. So I'm really thinking about getting a studio display and just using my Mac Mini, M1 Mac Mini, which I have, and in the future just upgrading that. And the Mac Mini will be... Um, going to the living room as a streamer device. Uh, thank you for MacCast. Keep up the good work. Hey, Niv, you are very welcome. And, you know, again, I have to say, this is a really cool thought process here. I like the idea of having the two things separate. You get the 27-inch screen, so the larger screen real estate, and with the Mac Mini, you have a machine, like you said, that you can upgrade at some point. So maybe when the M2 comes out, you can swap out your Mini, still have a great display, and increase your performance at a lower price point. So uh, I don't know. What do you think in the community? Is this Apple's solution for a consumer desktop with a 27-inch display at that kind of sweet high-end consumer pro price point? I feel like maybe it is, and there's a lot of great options with the Mini. I also like the fact that Paul pointed out earlier that even if the number of USB-C ports on the Mini are a little bit lacking, you can make up for that. You can make up for it with the display, which is another thing I had not considered. So this is a great conversation. I'd love to keep it going. If you have more feedback on this, or if you want to defend the 24-inch iMac as the more viable option, please do that. Shoot me some feedback. Send me an email, maccast at gmail.com. So I want to talk about some not-so-stupid iOS tricks. I ran across a couple real nifty iOS tricks this week and wanted to share them with you just in case you missed them. The first one is a cool copy-paste trick that relies on continuity and the universal clipboard on iOS. And this came actually, I saw it in a tweet, but it was originally on TikTok by a user named Michael Tobin. And this feature has actually been around for a long time, but I was fully unaware of it. And I think a lot of us in the community were. 
basically to use it, you need to make sure that you have handoff turned on on both your devices. So you're going to go into settings, general handoff, and make sure that allow handoff is on. And you will need two iOS devices. I think you can kind of do this on the Mac, but the trick is really more impressive if you have, say, like an iPhone and an iPad. So make sure that you have handoff on on both of those. Also make sure that both devices have Wi-Fi and Bluetooth turned on because you need that for continuity and handoff. And then make sure that all your devices are logged into the same iCloud account with the same Apple ID. And uh, that will allow this magic to work. And now what you can do is in photos or from an image, say in files, you can do a gesture for copying that content. And it's a three finger pinch in gesture. gesture. So take your index, your middle and your thumb and sort of swipe in or pinch in like you're picking up the photograph virtually and then if you do it correctly the gesture is a little bit tricky but if you do it correctly you will see a copy notification on your device and once you have that then what you can do is go into a text field in an app on your other device so say messages notes pages and email and then do the opposite. Do a three-finger pinch-out gesture, expanding your fingers to actually paste the image right onto your device. Like I said, this can be tricky to master. These gestures aren't necessarily easy, but once you've done it, it truly feels magical because what it looks like when you're looking at it is like you're virtually picking up the image on one device and literally placing it on another and it's a little bit of apple magic it's that attention to detail that makes apple devices and the apple experience so special and i again don't know why we hadn't seen this before but play around with it let me know what you think the next trick is actually a nod to the roots of mac os and older mac geeks out there probably know who claris is claris the dog cow if you don't um, if you've ever been printing on a Mac or I think even on iOS, you'll see this icon and you look at the page orientation icon, you've seen Claris, the dog cow. It's a little icon, uh, eight bit icon. It looks like a cross between literally a dog and a cow. And it was actually part of a bitmapped dingbat font. Think of it as an icon font called Cairo, which was designed by Susan Kerr, who did all the fonts and icons on the original Mac. Uh, you can see a great article. I'll have a link to it in the show notes at maccast.com by Stephen Hackett over at 512 Pixels if you want to know a lot more about the history of Dog Cow. But that's Dog Cow. And regardless, this trick on iOS uh, it works if you have predictive typing enabled. So you want to make sure you have that turned on. I think it's on by default on most iOS devices, but if you go in to predictive text in settings and make sure that's on, um, you can get there by holding or touching and holding the smiley or the smiley icon or the globe icon on your keyboard, then tap keyboard settings and then turn on predictive. You can also go into settings, general keyboard and turn it on from there as well. And this really works best on an iPhone. I think I tried it on my iPad and it, it didn't necessarily work there. So make sure you do this on an iPhone. But basically if you're typing in an app and you have predictive typing turned on and you type the word Claris, C-L-A-R-U-S, you will see a dog and a cow emoji displayed as some of the predictive options. So Apple slipping in a little Easter egg, a little nod to their roots when you are working on an iOS device. And that's kind of a cool little trick as well. Maybe not uh, super handy, but uh, yeah, again, I always love it when Apple kind of um, plays homage to their past and they are really pretty good at that and they do it in a lot of neat and subtle ways and this is just another great example of that so there you go a couple cool little not so stupid ios tricks Brian emailed me about our discussion back in mid-March about the possible continued convergence of Apple's notebooks and iPads. You, you may have noticed that mm, iPad OS and Mac OS 
seem to be getting closer and closer together. And there's been some discussion in the community about, you know, when is Apple just going to finally admit it and uh, say that notebooks and iPads are the same device? I don't know if it'll ever happen. I don't think it'll ever happen. Apple says it won't. But again, we've heard this story before. Remember when Steve Jobs famously said there would never be video on an iPod and Sure enough, you know, a few years later there was, or it may may have even been months later. I don't quite remember. But uh, our conversation back in mid-March got Brian thinking that an iPad with a Magic Keyboard upgrade for his current iPad might also be a viable replacement for his aging 2014 MacBook Pro. And I think, depending upon your use cases, yeah, that probably could happen. But that did get Brian thinking about the question of backup and specifically local backup. You know, if you're if you have an iPad as your only device, he asks, is there any kind of local solution for backup? Can I back up without having the cloud or specifically iCloud? And unfortunately, the answer currently, as far as I know, unless there's some obscure product I haven't been able to find and the community will find it for me if I haven't found it. But unfortunately, I would say largely the answer is no. Now, the good news, in my opinion, is that iCloud backup for iOS devices is really pretty good. It has worked very reliably for me, and I have had no issues using it. But you also know that I'm a huge fanatic when it comes to backup, and I feel like having a backup only in one place is not really necessarily a backup. We are putting a lot of trust in Apple at that point. That's why I like to also occasionally back up my iOS devices to my Mac, um, which you can do. But again, that relies on actually having another Apple device. So, you know, what happens if maybe you don't have consistent, reliable internet, you can't rely on the cloud, or maybe you just don't trust Apple with all your precious data. What is the solution? And really at this point, you would still need a Mac to connect to either wired or wirelessly to back up that iPad locally. Now, luckily you can use an older or aging Mac for this. You don't need the latest and greatest Mac, but you know, slowly over time, Macs age out and you know, that can change at any moment. So I thought Brian's question was a really great one to bring up here on the MacCast and kind of throw out to the community. I will comment that there is kind of another option for backing up directly from an iPad, but it really would be having to do a lot of things manually, at least for files and data. I guess you could also use cloud services, but again, we're talking about backing up locally without using the cloud. And that is, you know, iPads now support connecting USB thumb drives directly to your iPad. So you can go into the files app and you can transfer files out. Um, There's also the SanDisk iExpand line of products that actually have Um, USB sticks that have lightning connectors or USB-C options. And they have an app that will allow you to automatically back up your entire photo library and your contacts, but that's not going to back up your operating system. It's not a full restore kind of option. So, you know, it does feel like there's a little bit of a missing piece in Apple's overall strategy to kind of sell iPad as a replacement for your computer, at least when it comes to backup. And Brian mentioned in his email something that I had been thinking about as well. He said it'd be great if Apple made a local backup appliance for iOS devices. And I 100% agree with that. Think of something like Apple's discontinued time capsule for the Mac that would allow you to do time machine on your Mac, but built specifically for your iOS devices. So you could attach it to your network. It could wirelessly back up locally your iOS devices and probably even do versioning and all that other fun stuff. And that would be a really cool product to see Apple bring out. And as a matter of fact, it'd be great if it worked for your Macs as well. I mean, I guess we're talking about really the return of Time Machine or the Time Capsule rather and uh, adding in support for both Macs and iOS devices. And I think that could be hugely popular, especially if it had some USB-C ports on it. You could attach external storage to kind of expand it. Um, don't know if that, I, I'm pretty sure that's not even a product that Apple is thinking about, but I know a lot of people would love to see Apple get back into that. And I've always talked about, you know, wanting 
Apple to have some sort of streaming media server as well. And I guess it could serve that purpose also. So yeah, some good thoughts and ideas there. And actually, while we're on the topic of backup, I received another backup question from Niv, who we heard from earlier. And actually, here was his backup question. Hi, Adam. Niv from Israel here. Uh, love the MacCast. Love the community. And here's a question for you and the community. Um, I have a Mac Mini, which is my main device, and a MacBook Pro, which is more of a device for uh, backups and syncing of my data. But every so often, I do need to work uh, away from home. And I take the MacBook Pro, of course, and just use like the backups that I have stored there. Um, so the question is, is there any alternative that people are using, like uh, an ass? Synology, for example, to have the files stored there and each computer um, uses that main storage or any other um, solutions that anyone can give for such a use case where you have two uh, Macs and each one needs to have the copy of all the data. Thanks for the awesome show. Hey, Niv, another great question and actually something that comes up from time to time here on the MacCast. And there are a few options. I have to say, I actually just use the documents and desktop feature of iCloud where you can have it sync everything in your documents folder and your desktop. And that works really, really great for me. And it's completely built in. Not only that, on devices with limited storage, you can actually set the optimized storage option so it will only sync kind of the recent files locally and then everything else can be pulled down through the cloud. Now that does rely on you having access to the cloud, but I have to say it works really well. And it's also great because it works not just with your Macs, but also all of your iOS devices. So you can have access to everything in your documents folder whenever and wherever you need it. It might require you to buy a little bit more iCloud storage, but I think it's actually worth the extra cost. Now, you mentioned having a NAS drive or something like that, Synology and other NAS drive products definitely do have options that offer private cloud. So you can actually remotely access files that are synced to that cloud, that private cloud on your NAS. And I know a lot of people really like those options. I've never personally enabled or used it with my Synology, but I've heard pretty good things. Um, I think it can be a little bit more finicky, uh, maybe a little bit more e uh, difficult to set up than just, you know, iCloud and documents and desktop, but certainly uh, a viable option. And maybe some folks in our community can let us know how those options work for them. And then, of course, you do have other cloud storage options like Dropbox, Box, Google Drive, Microsoft OneDrive. All of those are good options for syncing your files between multiple devices and there is also part of this conversation that usually comes up and i'll mention it now because i'm sure i'll get the question of folks who don't want to use the cloud so what are options for kind of syncing two macs and having the same files on each mac and for that uh, the only option i ever really consider and again it can be a little bit tricky to set up but there's some great instructions on their website is i use um Chronosync and Chronosync I use for some of my network backups to sync particular folders, but they do have the ability to kind of sync an entire Mac or at least an entire home folder between two Macs. And you can set that up and it is a good product for that. So you might check out Chronosync if you're looking for some way to keep two Macs kind of synced together with the same data, the same information, um, but not have to go through the cloud. So there's definitely some options out there. I'm sure there's some that I'm actually missing, which is why your question is so great, because we can throw it out to the MacCast community, and I'm sure they'll come back with some great options, tips, and tricks. So look for those potentially on a future episode of the MacCast. But thanks for your question, and there you go, a couple great questions. Uh, bits of conversation about backup in a couple different forms. 
Dan wrote in this week with an interesting question as well, because he recently got his hands on a lower cost drone that he's really enjoying. And it has some great features like Wi-Fi live video, auto return home, attitude hold, follow me, waypoint flights, etc. But Dan did note that while the video it takes looks great, it can tend to be a little bit shaky since at the price point he paid, just a little over 100 bucks, which is an amazing price for all those features on that drone, it doesn't offer, it seems like, image stabilization or at least not very good image stabilization. So Dan asked me, hey, do you know of any software that can stabilize video? And as a matter of fact, Dan, yes, I do. And best of all, this software is built into every Mac and it's iMovie. I'll have a link to the how-to on Apple's support website on how to do this, but basically iMovie has features that can not only stabilize your video, but can also deal with rolling shutter, what they call jelly roll, which some you know lower-end cameras and things can actually suffer for. So it can actually do some adjustments for these kinds of video issues, and um, for image stabilization, it's pretty easy. You just you know, go into iMovie, put a clip on your timeline, select that clip, and then click the stabilization icon. That looks like a little camera with shake lines above and below it. And then you just have to check the option for stabilizing shaky video. Once you hit that checkbox, you'll get a slider and you can adjust that slider to compensate for the amount of shake that you might have in your video. And this doesn't work, you know, isn't just for drone footage, but this is also a great option if you're doing handheld camera shots and uh, maybe your iPhone doesn't have the optical image stabilization and you have a little bit of shaky video. So you can definitely use this feature to adjust for that. And once you've enabled it, there is an activity indicator to uh, indicate how much of the clip has been analyzed and stabilized. I will tell you, depending upon the length of the clip and the speed of your Mac, it can take some time to stabilize the video. So be prepared to wait, but it does a fairly decent job. And then for rolling shutter, it's a similar sort of thing. You select the video in the timeline, you click on the stabilization icon, you check the fix rolling shutter checkbox, and then there's a pop-up menu that allows you to choose how much rolling shutter collection you want to apply to your clip. So there definitely is a built-in way to deal with that shaky video using iMovie. I'm also sure that there are probably other tools out there um, that our community knows about. And if you do know of a tool that you particularly like for dealing with shaky video, let us know about it. Send us an email or audio comment to maccast at gmail.com. And then finally for this week, I have a MacCast listener thing of the moment. One thing I love is great little one, what I call one trick applications, an application that does one simple thing, does it very, very well. These solve everyday problems for us on our Macs. And this week's thing of the moment is actually one of those. It comes from Fernando who says that he was using a tool called Mac Media Key Forwarder to solve this issue, but that app seems to have been abandoned by the developer and he was looking for something new. And what issue this solves for Fernando is with media players and specifically the media keys on your Mac keyboard. Now, normally those media keys control your media player feedback or uh, playback rather. So if you're using an app like Apple Music or Spotify to play music on your Mac, you can tap the media keys to skip forward, skip back, play pause, all of that fun stuff. And that works great until you switch focus to another app that maybe has a media player. For example, YouTube or Facebook videos when you're browsing the web. And at that point, the media keys will control that embedded media player and no longer control your music, which may be playing in the background. So Fernando found an app called Reflex. I will have a link to it in the show notes at maccast.com. It comes from Stunt Software. And what this does is simply it makes it so that while this app is running, it will tell the operating system to keep the media keys always focused on and always in control of either the music app or Spotify, whichever one 
you might be using. And that way, if you start playing a YouTube video and you want to pause the music in the background, you can still tap the media key on your keyboard and it will do just that versus just pausing your YouTube video, which might not be exactly what you want. So pretty nifty. It is free. And again, I'll have a link to it in the show notes at maccast.com. And thanks to Fernando for sending that along. But with that, that is going to do it for this episode of the MacCast. Bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at backbeatmedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IAM-9. And if you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at maccast.com. And finally, if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash MacCast, or you can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the MacCast, or find me on Instagram, just MacCast on Instagram. But that will do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon.